from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Anita Chapman, a third-generation Baha'i now living in Washington, D.C. She had traveled all over the world, and one of her occupations was to write and broadcast for The Voice of America. I started the interview by asking Anita where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up in San Francisco, California, which is a gorgeous place. And I was aware, even uh, as I grew up, that it was a gorgeous place. What was school life like? I yeah. detested public school. <laughs> <laughs> and I have kept a prejudice all my life toward public schools because I was so bored. But that's for another reason, which we might go into later. I had a very, very interesting home, and my father brought very interesting people to my home. So the whole deal with school, I didn't find much in common with the kids. I didn't like it. Uh, I thought the teachers were um, very curious. This is many, many years ago. Maybe things have got better. So how were the teachers curious? Some of them were lovely people starting out, but others were older people who were kind of, and particularly one who was a, a shrew, and I just, I feared her so. I feared walking down the hall that I might ran, run into her. Mm. I went to school to reveal my age, which is, which is very advanced now. I went to the same high school as Lana Turner, and this woman was always picking on her because, of course, she was gorgeous from the time she was born. I don't know if you even know who she is. I assume she's an actress? An actress, and she was very beautiful, even as a girl. And so these guys used to come up from Los Angeles trying to get her into various things, and she'd be out at nightclubs and all. This teacher was so nasty to her. She was an, an older woman, and she was very abusive of kids, I thought. That didn't make me like school, because she was our chief teacher. So why was home life so interesting? Well, my father was a very active, now we're speaking of the Baha'i faith, my father was a very active Baha'i, and he gave talks everywhere, and he knew interesting people, and he knew people who were very active in putting forth the ideas of Baha'u'llah. You know, world peace, uh, equality of men and women, uh, science and religion, agreeing with one another, all of these things which Baha'u'llah brought as the basis of his teachings. So these were very interesting people, and I sat and listened to interesting conversations around the dinner table when they came over. The contrast with school was, was glaring. I did not like public school, and I still have my prejudice <laughs> against it. Yeah, so do you know how your father became a Baha'i? He was two years old when his parents, who both came from Germany to this country when they became Baha'is. And his mother said some years later, so he just grew up in this beautiful religion. 
So you're a third generation Baha'i. I'm a third generation Baha'i. Um, Thing like the Persians, you know, the Persian <laughs> Baha'is, their families go back to 1844, many of them, yeah. because that's when the Baha'i faith began in, in Iran, what we call Iran now. So they have this lengthy, lengthy, but now we're getting three, four, five generations in the Western world also, in the rest of the world. Do you know how your grandparents became Baha'is? Yes, that's an interesting story. My grandfather, as he grew up, his mother told him time and again, you know there has to be a new religion because all the churches are fighting with one another and you can't build a world on that basis and you can't raise children and you can't have peace in the world when there is all of this inter, uh, not interreligious at that time, but so far as Christianity was concerned, this fighting among the churches. So he grew up with that in his mind. And he became quite a student, even going back and learning some ancient language in which part of the testaments, the Christian testaments, are written. And he became a great student of prophecy. So this was always on his mind. And he came over to this country as a gift after he graduated from law school. But law school, of course, there was much shorter than it is here. In any event, that's just to say that he wasn't very old. He was maybe 24. And he came over with this little orphan who lived with his pal from law school. She was 15, and that was my grandmother. And when they just, when the family was going back to Europe, they decided they wanted to stay in this country. So they got married, and they stayed in this country. They had 12 children. And he and my father, of all of the, well, two children died, but of the ten children who lived, my father and his father were the closest, and they constantly discussed this question of religion and prophecy and what the Bible says and what the Old Testament says. So they were very close for that. They would take long walks together and discussing this all the time. Your father and your well, grandfather. My father grew up with that also in his mind. You never finished the story of how your grandfather ran into the oh, Baha'i yes. faith. How they became Baha'i. Well, they tried one church, and then they went to another church, and then they stayed a time here and a time there. And finally, when they moved right near Chicago from other places further west, they went to an evening where a man was talking about new teachings that had come to the world. And he had a series of 12 lessons in these new teachings. And they started going to every one of them. Now, this is in spite of the climate of Chicago, which is dreadful most of the year. My grandmother and grandfather were just enamored of going to these classes. And at the very end, the very end, this man said, and God in his great mercy has brought us another messenger, and his name is Baha'u'llah. From that moment on, they considered themselves Baha'is. They started to learn more about Baha'u'llah himself. Because the man had spoken mostly about the need of unity in religion and, and all of these things. Only at the end did he say, is a new messenger of God. And from then on, they were very voted Baha'is. 
So your grandmother and grandfather were taught by Ibrahim Karela? Yes, that's right. But a colleague of his. I see. A colleague of his who also gave those classes. What was your grandfather and grandmother's name? The name was Iowa's Carl. Carl, he changed it to Charles when he moved here. And her name was Maria. And your father's name? My father's name was Leroy. What did you do after you graduated from high school since you hated public school so much? <laughs> I at last started to get what I considered good schools. I applied to Stanford University, and I was accepted. I was in the highest marks of the entrance exam, which was very difficult, I thought. But they said to me, we accept you to Stanford, but you have to defer for one year. Now listen to this, you won't believe it. It shows how old I am. <laughs> they said to me, we take one girl for three boys. And I just accepted it. I mean, now, can you imagine? Yeah, it'd be a lawsuit on their hands. <laughs> it is, yes. But I accepted it. So I went to a superb junior college in San Mateo, which is a, a lovely town south of San Francisco. And I loved it, and there were very good professors. And that's where my real education started, right there. And what did you study at Stanford? Well, I had a very curious, I shouldn't go into this, it makes me sound like I, I lost my mind very early on, <laughs> but I had a very curious university career. I went one year to Stanford and loved it, and then I discovered that my father really couldn't afford to have me there. So I said, well, I'm going over to Berkeley to uh, the University of California. And I went over there the following year. And I loved that also. It was very stimulating. Then I dropped out of school for about three years. And I, Baha'is will understand this, I went up to Canada because there was a great at that time to establish Baha'i administrative institutions, Baha'i communities all over the United States and every province of Canada. And I went up to Canada, Edmonton, and I had never lived in the cold, and of course it was six months of winter there. <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience, and that's where I grew up, really. I went to work right away, and the uh, Second World War was on at that time. What kind of work? What I could find. I worked for a counterintelligence unit of fascinating group of men. Everybody was brought in through the draft. for men in plain clothes who were investigators of all the air crashes that took place. But at that time, from Edmonton, Lend-Lease was sending all of these planes to Russia. And Russian pilots would take them over in uh, the very tip of uh, Alaska. And uh, so there were lots of crashes here and there. And so I worked for this fascinating counterintelligence thing. There was the lieutenant who ran the office was in uniform. All the other men, one was a writer from Time magazine, another was the chief of police of Xenia, Ohio, another was a lawyer, smart lawyer from uh, Texas, and just a fascinating group of men. So I enjoyed that very much. Right. At the same time, we worked on trying to create our Baha'i community in Edmonton. There were only, there were five. I was the fifth Baha'i when I went there. And then to finish with my great college career, after two and a half years there, I went back to Stanford 
and it was like going back to paradise after being working world and the cold and everything. I went back to Stanford, which is probably one of the loveliest places on earth. What motivated you to head back to Stanford after being in Edmonton for two and a half years? Well, I didn't go up to Edmonton to live there. I went up there to help establish the Baha'i community, and it grew and grew. And then, of course, I wanted to finish college. I went back to Stanford. My sister had graduated from Stanford. Many Baha'is went to Stanford University. Many, many. What did you end up studying the balance of that time? I studied anything I felt like studying, and that's why I say it was such a curious college career. Because, uh, for instance, in Berkeley, a university of such vast scope and professors, I, for instance, took a lot of Chinese poetry there, and the professor did his own translations from the original Chinese. So that's the sort of thing that was open at Berkeley. It was marvelous. And at Stanford, there was another great, great thing we had. We had refugees from the war in Europe. And, for instance, I took a lot of music courses with the former director of the Czech Opera House. I took some uh, political science courses with the former foreign minister of Finland. This is what happened as that war was ending. It was great richness given to this country. And what was your degree when you finished? Well, B.A., not in anything in particular. It was a very scattered learning curve. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do after you finished university? There again, I was very close to the Baha'i community always. And that is when the guardian of the Baha'i faith, Shoghi Effendi, he launched another of these great development plans. I had gone to Edmonton under one of his first development plans. Then he decided that what he called the spiritually famished continent of Europe had to have eyes all over Europe and Baha'i communities. So I went to Europe. A friend of I and mine and I, we went to Europe. And we went to the little country of Luxembourg, which is grown up now and is quite important. But then it was a um, very small, closed society, something like Quebec must have been, or it modernized. Luxembourg was a fiefdom. I say this, and it's true, I don't think anyone would deny it. It was a fiefdom of the Catholic Church, and they controlled everything in it. After the Nazis got out, they came back. So it was very, very difficult think of establishing a Baha'i community in that type of atmosphere. Was there any opposition to you? Oh, yes. They watched very carefully everything we did. And so we were extremely careful in what we did. We mainly went there and tried to make friends. And we did make a lot of friends. And because most of us there, there were four of us there at that time, three of us were quite young, and we started, for instance, an international club. No one had ever heard of such a thing, Luxembourg. And, of course, the young Luxembourgers, they were enchanted with it. They had never never heard of such a thing. They had never seen the activities that we did. There were young Frenchmen there who could do recitations of the old French poets and all and put on plays, and another one could do uh, fencing exhibits because he was a master of fencing. 
That's what he was doing in Luxembourg. He was very attractive to the young people of Luxembourg. But then came too popular. The church warned them not to go there anymore. Anymore. They obeyed. So they were still friends of ours. But uh, our wonderful international club, which had young people from the embassies, it had uh, these young Frenchmen who were there to work for Radio Luxembourg, which was run out of Paris, and it had the Baha'is, the young Baha'is, and uh, it was a wonderful thing for the country. Anita, how long were you in Luxembourg? I was two, two and a half years there. I moved on for a year to Brussels to help that community there. You know, Europe was very, very... Very People distrusted everything. I mean, how could they not? They had been under Nazi occupation for years. So they distrusted everything. So uh, a lot of people were down and out. And they thought, well, these American people who've come over from uh, the United States and they want us to be Baha'is, why not? So there was some of that in some of the countries. Some of the countries were just splendid, like Italy. It just from the beginning, a great Baha'i, Ugo Giacchieri, went there from New York. He left New York to Italy. The people interested in the faith were just wonderful. Professors, uh, people in the artistic fields. So Italy, from the beginning, had a wonderful Baha'i community. Baha'i International headquarters where Baha'u'llah finished his life in a, in a lovely, lovely place called Badji. The guardian of the Baha'i faith loved to put up pictures at Badji, where Baha'u'llah lived the last years of his life and where he passed away. For instance, he put up the first all-Native American assembly in uh, Cody, Wyoming, of this country. He put up Luxembourg, the first assembly. So when people go to Badji, they sometimes come back and say, oh, I saw your picture there. That was from the assembly in Luxembourg. He loved to do that because then people could see the extent of the Baha'i world because there were these pictures from everywhere. Anita, for the sake of our listeners, Baji is near Akka in Israel, correct? Right. And Baha'u'llah was sent to Akka, the small city which is near Baji. Baha'u'llah was sent to Akka in his final punishment from the Sultan of Turkey. He was sent there because it was the place where they sent the worst people of the Turkish Empire. They just wanted them to go and die there. And that's what they thought Baha'u'llah would do. After being imprisoned since the age of 27, and uh, they sent him to Akka because the uh, climate was horrible, there was no clean water, the air was filthy, the streets were filthy. It, It was a dirty outpost of the Turkish Empire. And that's where they sent Baha'u'llah. And his going there, his being sent there, is the reason that the Baha'i global center, the world center of the Baha'i faith, is right next door to it in Haifa. Haifa and, and Akka are the world center of the Baha'i faith. And Baji is the name of the beautiful property where Baha'u'llah lived the last years of his life. Anita, can you explain to our listeners why the Sultan of Turkey did this to Baha'u'llah? Well, the um, Shah of Iran condemned Baha'u'llah to perpetual 
banishment from his own country and also to be a prisoner for the rest of his life. His first exile was to Baghdad, which we know a lot about now. Hawallah lived 10 years of his life there, and they are very fascinating years, and some of his greatest works, because Baha'u'llah said he was the new messenger of God, coming in answer to the prophecies of Christianity, of Buddhism, of Islam. That's what made them so upset, that he said he came in answer to the prophecies of Islam. By a certain reckoning they have, a certain interpretation of Islam, they say there can never be another messenger of God. Well, of course, if you think of God as a loving father, he's not going to leave his children alone forever. So the concept is that these messengers of God have always come to the world and will always come. However, Baha'u'llah was sent to Baghdad, where he spent 10 years of his life, and then the Iranians, and of course it was under the Turkish Empire at that time, but there was a lot of Iranian influence because some of the holiest sites of Shia Islam are in um, Baghdad, south of Baghdad, as everybody knows now because it's in the news all the time. So the Persian ambassador there started agitating and said he had to be pushed further away from Iran. And so they together said they sent him out of Iraq over to Constantinople, Istanbul. He stayed only a few months, and then the Sultan sent him further away. That was up near the Black Sea to, um, and I'm forgetting the name of it, you'll give it to me. Adrianople? Where he lived for five years. And from Adrianople, again, the agitation on the part of the Iranian government started again. And the sultan, who was working with the Iranian government, Baha'u'llah was the prisoner of both of them, and the sultan gave in to the um, demands of the Iranians that he had to be put someplace where he could never have any influence again, because in Adrianople he became very, very well known, as he did in Baghdad. That's another long story. Anyway, at that point, the sultan condemned him to Perpetual banishment to Akka, which was in Palestine. World War, the Turks lost the war, so the territory was mandated by the League of Nations to the United Kingdom, to England. And so England was there for a number of years, and then after that, the State of Israel was born in 1948. So that is why, a long story of why High World Center is in Akka and Haifa. And, of course, this is one of the things that the Baha'is are terribly persecuted for right this minute in Iran, because their world center is in Israel. They were sent there by the Sultan of Turkey. So it's interesting that the Baha'is are accused of having their center in Israel, and ultimately it was the Shah, to some degree, that sent them there in the first place. That's right. Shah working with the Sultan. Wherever Baha'u'llah went, this is an interesting thing. When you think of the life of Christ, how he influenced people so profoundly anywhere he went. He went from village to village, just influenced anyone who met him, because he was a messenger of God. And Baha'u'llah says that the messengers of God have an innate quality 
that influences people's souls. And that is why they have this spiritual influence on the world. So wherever Baha'u'llah went, of his teachings, one of his greatest works was revealed in Baghdad. And it might be worth mentioning something about this. He wrote this book that he called the Book of Certitude. Now, certitude means to be absolutely sure of something. In Persian, it's the Kitab-i-Igan. It's called the Igan. It means the Book of Certitude. What it did, what it does, it tells our world in this brief, it's not a large book, in this brief text, it tells people why the human race turns against the messenger of God. And it has happened every time a messenger of God has come. It happened with the Buddha. His, his faith did not spread in India. It spread in Japan and, and the rest of Asia, but not in India where he was born and taught. Why does the human race turn against the messenger of God? What are the things that blind them to understanding that a new messenger of God has come? What are the meanings of these prophecies which seem so ephemeral? I mean, for instance, cloud, uh, Christ is going to come in the clouds. But what do clouds mean? All of this he goes into in the Egon, in this book of certitude. This book, more than any single thing, caused people, if every religion of the world, to understand the message of Baha'u'llah. Because they finally understood their own prophecies. He told them what the prophecies mean. They are not to be taken literally. They have a figurative meaning. So he describes all of these things. It's a very, very lovely book. It's a very confirming book. I mean, certitude is to be confirmed in something. But people learned all over the world and from every background what their religion had promised them in the way of prophecy. And it also made them understand why don't people accept the messenger of God. So, Anita... For the sake of our listeners, you had mentioned that one explanation that Baha'u'llah gave in regarding to the Christian prophecies was when the prophecy said that Jesus would come down on the clouds. How did Baha'u'llah explain that particular reference? Well, the clouds, he explains, are anything which intervene between man and God. Clouds can be anything you're speaking of Christ coming in the clouds of glory. Baha'u'llah says these can be interpreted. He says very definitely in the Gone, the clouds, when they're referred to in, in prophecies, refer to anything which comes between man and God. Now when it means that Christ comes in the clouds, the clouds may be the intervening of the clergy of the former religion may be the clouds that intervene between people and Baha'u'llah, or people, and Christ. Because Christ was not accepted. The Sanhedrin did not accept him. He said all sorts of things. He's not this, he's not that, and what good can come from Nazareth? I'm thinking about the fact that Baha'u'llah has come, build a new civilization, and that in order to do this, he has to create a new world, and a new way of thinking. And I, I would love to mention 
few things characteristics of the Baha'i world. For one thing, the Baha'i world is worldwide. We all know that the Encyclopedia Britannica said several years ago that other than Christianity, the Baha'i faith is the most widespread, not the largest, widespread religion in the world. And that's for a very logical reason which Baha'is know, because they went out and founded communities everywhere. So it is worldwide. Secondly, it is unified. It is unified not only the Baha'i world, not only by a spiritual inheritance which all Baha'is share, I mean the story of the precursor of, of Baha'u'llah, of Baha'u'llah's life, of his son's life, of the development of the administrative governance of the Baha'i world. It, the Baha'i world is governed everywhere in the same way, and that governance was given by the Prophet of God, Baha'u'llah. It is such a firm basis on which to establish a community. Second, thirdly, the Baha'i world is all-inclusive. There is everyone in it. There is no nation on earth that is not represented in the Baha'i world and represented in a, in a decent, abiding, appreciative way. I just saw something on the television tonight of the people, the native people of Australia. What a difficult time they have finding their way. But we have them in the Baha'i community of Australia. They are honored parts of the Baha'i community of Australia. So it is all-inclusive, all over the world. And then there's another thing. In the Baha'i world, there is a new way of decision-making. It's not by... Uh, the old ways of parliamentary votes and things like that. It is by individuals deciding between themselves and God what their decision is and what their attitude is and how they will vote in Baha'i elections. And then lastly, there's a different way of Baha'i elections, which is extraordinary and it's effective. People say it couldn't possibly work because there's no nomination, there's no um, campaigning, uh, there's no money involved, and people say it can't work. The thing is, it works all over the Baha'i world. In every different culture, it is working. And then the last thing I would mention, there is an effective moral system in the Baha'i faith. There are don'ts in the Baha'i teachings, and there are do's in the Baha'i teachings. Some of the do's are to pray every night of your life and bring yourself to a reckoning and say, what have I done today to make myself better than yesterday? Most of us forget to do that, but Baha'u'llah has asked us to do that. So it's an effective moral system. And it's interesting, I'll go back to Iran. One of the things that the Iranians who persecute the Baha'is so much know, get a Baha'i to do something, not going to be any bakshish, any, any buying of favors, is going to be total honesty. Uh, there was one Baha'i in Iran who was working for a company, and the man said, you know I'm going to expand, I'm going to another Arab country, and blah, 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 I would like you to go and represent us. And he find, the man finally said to him, no, I'm a Baha'i. And his employer said, of course I know you're a Baha'i. That's why I hired you, and that's why I want you to go to do this. There's a lot of corruption in the world, this personal corruption. God knows we know it in this country. And this uh, Supreme Court ruling will increase it tenfold. But, yeah. Allah, 
got out of people was a change in their moral mood. That is a very great thing. So those those are some of the characteristics that the Baha'is live under in their Baha'i communities, and it's very strong. Yeah, you intimated that the teaching of the independent investigation of truth. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that teaching. No, Baha'u'llah says that this is an age, this is the age when we can read and write for ourselves, and even if we can't, this is the age of search. This is the time of search. A messenger of God has come, a search to try to find him. And that means setting aside, for some people it's extremely difficult, that means setting aside your accepted notions that my family has always gone to this church and therefore this, my family will always go to that church. Well, that, is, that cuts you off from a lot of things. Other churches, for one thing. Other people, other races, perhaps, who go to different churches. All of this. Uh, Baha'u'llah says, you must search for truth for yourself. For this is the way you find justice. This is just. To find for yourself what you believe. To weigh it in the balance. I mean, is Baha'u'llah who he said? Somebody, somebody made a wonderful film of Baha'u'llah. And he said, he called it the secret of our century. Baha'u'llah is the secret of our century. And so we must seek to find him, to find the truth. Maybe we won't end up with Baha'u'llah. Maybe we'll end up with something quite different. But it will be ours because we have sought it. And Baha'u'llah says this is increasingly the age of reading and writing. And we do not have to be told what we believe, when we believe it, what to do, how, what mood to take in our belief. That we must arrive wherever we arrive. Maybe we will arrive at something quite, quite different from anything we, our family ever knew. But that is it. That is it. It is to look independently for yourself what you believe. Then it's strong. And you know what you believe. So, Anita, is there clergy in the Baha'i faith? There is no clergy in the Baha'i faith, and that is one of the things that, uh, why people like myself are blah-blahing on, <laughs> on the radio, of, right? getting a right reverend or a reverend right to come, because this is the age when Baha'u'llah said everyone must search for himself, and they will read and write for themselves, and they will know the scriptures for themselves. You know, we have Baha'is who can't read and write. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. But what they know is that they can memorize. You know, people who don't read and write very often have acute memories. That's what they know. That's where they have their whole stock. It's like the Internet upstairs in their brain. They have very fine memories. So they memorize the Baha'i teachings. They know what Baha'u'llah said. They can recite what Baha'u'llah said. And this is a very great thing. And little by little, everyone, because one of the basic Baha'i teachings is that everyone must be have an education, free education for everyone, and particularly for girls who will form the next generation. And if we uh, look at what people are saying uh, today about development, you'll see that a lot of it has to do with getting the girls into some kind of little trade, you know, the man. Bangladesh, that wonderful man who gives a little amount of money and women 
form businesses. Yeah. And uh, when they form businesses and they bring home a little money and their husbands respect them for the first time, then things change. Balance changes in the family. And he thinks, well, they use the money not to go to the bar and drink. They use the money to get their children educated. So it's a whole cycle. Baha'u'llah is great tribute to the clergy of the old religions. He said they preserved the religion. They kept it as pure as they could. And particularly the, the monks, they did wonderful, wonderful services to humanity. And Baha'u'llah pays tribute to that. We're not downing the clergy. We're not anti-clergy. It's just that Baha'u'llah says now is the age when everyone will be able to hunt for the truth for himself. Is there a teaching in the Baha'i faith regarding if you have to decide who's going to get educated, a boy or a girl? Well, that's very clear in Baha'u'llah's writings. If you must choose between the two, it's the girl who must be educated because she's raising the next generation. And if you look at countries where the society is held back, you'll see it's the countries where the women are not educated. And they pass on this ignorance to their children. But it also says in Baha'i writings, there will be storehouses in every place where people live, in villages, towns, and the storehouse will have adequate funds so that in reality everyone must be educated. But if you must make a choice, that's it. You had mentioned the inclusivity of the Baha'i community, which reminded me of the teaching Unity and Diversity. I wonder if you could elaborate on that teaching. Well, you know, we laugh about that sometimes because we have big Baha'i conferences and they say it's at such and such a hotel, which is the way we do things in this country. And if you're late getting to something after it starts, you go around and you open a door and you open a door, you see only African-Americans. You say, oh, that's not it. You open another door, only white people. Oh, you say, that's not it. You open another door... And there's this wave of humanity of all colors. You say, yes, that's the Baha'i conference. One of the things that excites people when they come to Baha'i meetings is that they see people who are different. And they see it in a happy way and in a convivial way and in a friendship way. I mean, I said, we'll know you by your loving one another. And I must say that Baha'is tend to love one another. It's something that comes with with praying together, with working together, with reliance on the bounty of God when you're in trouble, when you're ill. All of these things mean that you get very close to uh, the Baha'is whom you know. You're close to other people, of course. I mean, we have 52 weeks of the year we have in Washington, D.C., a Sunday morning meeting at 11 o'clock. It doesn't matter what's happening. We have that meeting at 11 o'clock on Sundays. Well, people come, and you can see that they look around. Well, they see this group of Ethiopians there, and then they see prayers in Russian, and then they hear a prayer in, in French. And they see all of this difference of people, and they see African Americans and white Americans really loving one another. Very impressive. And you know, in India, that was a real test. Great numbers. We have more Baha'is in India than anywhere else on earth. And of course, that's where you have a very strict, was very strict caste system. 
Uh, now India has actually had, about seven, eight years ago, president who was from the lower caste. They have evolved also. It's interesting in Baha'i communities that had to deal with this problem, and they dealt with it, I'm sure. Just as we have here, our great problem is race prejudice. That is the great problem in the United States. And the Baha'is are so far ahead solving that problem any other organization in America. How's that? Our Baha'i communities are all made up of diverse people. And in fact, we have our own little way of advancing people who have been downtrodden. In the Baha'i election, if the, there are nine members, and if the vote for the nine, ninth member is split evenly between an African-American and a white American, African-American will automatically be the one chosen. That is our own way of developing talent. So just to change tact here a little bit, Anita, how long were you in Europe? Oh, I've lived a lot in Europe, but uh, I, I was just a few years on that particular episode, that particular endeavor, about three years. And then I went off and lived and worked in Paris for five years. I've lived a lot in Europe with my husband. At what point did you get married? I, after I spent five years in Paris... Then I had to come back to New York because my job folded in Paris, and they sent me back to New York. And I tried and tried to get work there. The only job I found was a job through New through Washington in Saigon for someone who could write and who spoke French. And I thought, no, I certainly don't want to do that. So Baha'is very often take the advice of people whom they admire very greatly. And I wrote to my father, who was working in our world center at that time. And I said, why don't you ask the Guardian, should I go to back to Paris or should I go to Saigon? And I got an answer right away. And the Guardian said, it would be very good if you could go back to France to help the community there. It would be much better if you could go to Saigon. So I picked up the phone. I said, I accept this job. And shortly thereafter, I went to Saigon. Well, you see how things work. I met my husband there. Now, that was a lovely uh, reward for me. So tell me about your experiences in Vietnam. Well, I was there two years, and I was there between the great wars, between the French War and the American War. The American War hadn't developed and grown up, and the French War was finished. Dien Bien Phu, all the rest, all the sacrifice, uh, that was finished. President Ngo Dinh Diem came into power, and he was a very fine figure. He was a very peacemaking figure. His family wasn't necessarily all that way, but that's the way he was. He went to a uh, very good Catholic college here near Washington, and he was a peacemaker. So they were two very beautiful years. There was a lot of international community. There was all the, you know, the French always give a certain élan to everything, a certain... Um, Making it fun, there were still good French restaurants and things like that, but there were wonderful Chinese restaurants because the Vietnamese, a lot of them are Chinese, Chinese descent. So it was a wonderful two years, and as I say, I met my husband there. 
we didn't get married till several several years later. But anyway, I met him there. The Vietnamese are a wonderful people. They are strong. The things we're saying about the Haitians now. They're strong. They're wonderful workers. They're very clever. These occupying powers, like the French when they went to Indochina, uh, they gave most of the responsible jobs to the Vietnamese. Why was it that you left Vietnam? Well, I was there only for two years, so then I came back to Washington, and that's when I started my my most delightful years of work, and that is I, I was broadcasting at the Voice of America, and that writing and broadcasting, and that I simply loved. Every day was fun. What kind of programming did you do at Voice of America? Uh, I was with the news. There were about six of us, and each of us had a certain area of the world, and we did a news report, news program every day on that part. I was South Asia. Else was Europe, somebody else was South America. They were such a group of fascinating, mostly men, all men. It was just fun. Every day I went there, it was fun. Was it unusual for a woman to be in this position? Oh, there was another woman. She did shows to South America for a bit. Oh, there were a lot more men than women. So, Anita, what would be the most interesting experience you had at Voice of America? Well, I guess one of them that was fun, every day I reported, because I did South Asia, when the Americans sent a team to go up Mount Everest. And, of course, every day I would have them on the air, something about what did we hear from our team on Mount Everest and all of these names that were so... uh, very bizarre camp this and camp that, but they were Nepalese names. Uh, that was great fun to know that they were listening to us. And they, we knew they were listening to us every day on Mount Everest. So that was fun. Anything dramatic that you recall being involved well, in? Well, dramatic was the day one of my colleagues who had earphones on listening, he did Europe, and he turned around and he said, they've taken a shot at President Kennedy. Well... That was it. Killed the president. And that was so dramatic. And then, um, of course, Voice of America went on the air in the next second with the news. And from then on, it's just constant. Those are very sad, dramatic days in Washington. Yeah, I recall those days, too. How long were you at Voice of America? Oh, well, until... (laughs) (laughs) Until I had to leave because I got married and I had... Two children, all, as somebody said, in full view of the Voice of America. Anita had two children. And then my husband was in Foreign Service, and he was at a posting ab- abroad, so I had to give up my work. So what countries did you go to with your husband? He is a bilingual French speaker, French-English. And so they sent him to countries where French was used. At that time, they did that in the... State Department. So he went to Morocco, he went to Lebanon, he went to Iran, and then he went to Saigon, which again was considered a French-speaking country, and that's where we met. Of course, I didn't go anywhere with my husband other than the little beautiful country of Laos. Otherwise, I had been to all the places that I went with him, because he was posted to Luxembourg, and then he was posted three times to Paris, and then he was posted to to uh, Indochina, to Laos, which is the only place I went that I had not been on my own. And Laos was uh, simply lovely, lovely, lovely people. So you'd been to Morocco? 
No, I've been there as a, as a tourist with my husband. He went there as his first posting in the Foreign Service. Was he a Baha'i at that time? Not a Baha'i. My husband is one of our great supporters. So, Anita, what are you doing now? I'm growing old. <laughs> in Washington. I'm quietly growing old. In Washington, D.C. I live in Washington, D.C. We have a house that we've had for 40 years, and we've left it and come back and left it and come back. But we both love it. We have three children who are all very active in their sphere of the Baha'i world. And then we have two grandchildren who are growing up. So we have a very happy, nice life. My life has been blessed. Well, Anita, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Well, I'm so happy to talk with you, Warren, to meet you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anita Chapman, a third-generation American Baha'i now living in Washington, D.C., who traveled all over the world, and one of her occupations was to write and broadcast for The Voice of America. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride. Then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian 
and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion, a descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.